All right. Welcome back to the Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. It's a Tuesday episode. So with us is our front end producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how you doing? Good morning, Bradley. Uh, so we got a couple of topics today that I wanted to touch on. One is we are now officially in the 2024 election cycle. So I want to talk about the presidential race. Um, two, I want to talk about there's been some sort of consternation among baseball fans about how low the ratings were for the World Series. And I want to explain why that's not a problem. Um, three, there was an AI summit in the UK. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Four, uh, FBI seized Eric Adams' phones, so that's, that'll be interesting to talk about. And then fifth, uh, Bob Greenlee is going to join us uh, last week. Uh, I think kind of was the first time that a U.S. carbon capture plant launched operations, and we're going to talk about what that might mean. So that's a good? lot. That's a lot of stuff, Bradley. Well, we got a lot to say. Okay, so we're going to start with Biden. It's crazy to think, right, that like the election, which Seemed like kind of far off for so long is now like a year away. I mean, the Iowa caucus is in January. I mean, no one's really, in a sense, it doesn't really exist because Biden is running and because, yeah, we can pretend that there's some sort of Republican primary, but effectively Trump's going to be the nominee unless he drops dead. Well, everybody everybody keeps expecting that there's going to be some kind of everybody gangs up on Trump moment. You just don't buy that. Everyone always thinks that. I mean, as you know, our candidate, um, Nikki Haley. Yeah, look, and by the way, of course I'm rooting for her, right? Because if Biden can't be president of the people who are in the mix, she would be my second choice. Right. Right. But... um, but yeah, but also like, did you see Tim Scott dropped out yesterday? Yeah, I, here, the, I forgot he was right. <laughs> ir- irrelevant, except in the world of kind of Republican hedge fund circles, which I don't really run in, but uh, talk to enough people and I have to have a sense of what they're thinking about. They liked him. They liked him, and the point to me is actually not even that they were calling it wrong. It's that. No one has anything to talk about because the outcome here, at least on the primary side, is guaranteed. So as a result, if people are getting paid to give political advice and analysis to hedge funders, just saying, yeah, Trump's going to be the nominee, like doesn't sound like they should be paid for that. So they start coming up with alternate theses like Tim Scott could be the guy. Like Tim Scott was never the guy. Um, and we keep doing this because all of us sort of in and around politics, you know, want to sound smart and want something more to talk about. But the reality is it's Trump. It's Biden. Okay, I know that's true, but still, I'm tempted by the idea that there could be some like everybody drops out and throws their support to to Nikki Haley. Does Ron Why DeSantis does that not seem happen? like he would ever do anything to benefit someone but himself? No, no, he certainly does not. But but here's the thing: on the other hand, he's not like a kamikaze pilot, right? So he's he's got to like no, but he I think what you think least, he is a kamikaze pilot. I think what he and Haley are thinking. I, I still think that they understand that they're not going to win the nomination. But if something does happen to Trump, if he does drop dead or whatever else, or there's some macro deal somehow that he won't be uh, jailed in return for not running or whatever it is, they want to be in the mix and in the game and at least have gotten the second most delegates um, so that they can make the case that they should be the nominee. So that's why they'll hang around the hoop for as long as they can. Um, Would it be better if DeSantis dropped out and supported Haley. Of course it is. But DeSantis is like a despicable fucking human being. He doesn't care. So he's not going to do so, that. So, but it, let, let's, let's, let me put it to you this way. A bunch of really rich uh, donors come to you and say, look, money, no object. What do we do to engineer this to happen? Like, And I'm not saying that you can obviously pull the strings. You're not a Republican. You're not like a some engineer party to inside. not make Trump a nominee. But, but by some kind of inside deal. They like, can't. It's impossible. They can't. I mean, Sam Bankman fried floated the idea of what would, it, what, I, what would we have to pay him to not run, which actually wasn't a bad question. I know, that's such a Bradley question. <laughs> Trump came back with a number, which was $5 billion. Um, so, um, you, you know. You know he'd take the money and still run, though. Yeah, exactly. So, no, I, I, I don't think there is any, there, there is no Republican Party outside of Donald Trump. So there's no, like, it doesn't matter how powerful these people used to be or think they might still be. They're not. Wow. So let's talk about yeah, yeah, sorry. what the variables are so right now what do we know we know that it's trump and biden we know that trump is beating biden in most of the swing states uh there was a new york times siena poll but then followed by an emerson poll and a morning console poll so it wasn't just sort of one outlier poll trump is clearly ahead right now that doesn't necessarily at all mean that trump's going to be the next president but i think that there are a bunch of variables that will have really big impacts. So I thought it makes sense to go through that. Yeah, let's do that. So the first one is Trump's trials. So like we've never had. Are you following that much? Like I mean, there's the not much life? happening right. right now. I mean, other than Eugene Debs, I guess there hasn't really ever been a presidential candidate who's on criminal trial while being the leading presidential candidate. So 
I don't know. I mean, it doesn't seem to have any impact uh, on him, but maybe when an actual trial starts, that changes. Maybe a conviction changes. I actually kind of think it doesn't. I think that, and we'll get into this in a minute, that people fully understand who Trump is, and the question is not them finally realizing how terrible he is. They get it, and that doesn't necessarily change their opinion. But In but, fact, it does not change their opinion. Right, but maybe. So that's one. Two, you know, to your point before, I wrote down Iowa surprise. You know, what if Trump does sort of underperforms and someone else overperforms? Maybe. I still don't really think it would matter. Um, third is Biden alive and healthy. He's an old man, right? So like, there's no guarantee that it's, his health won't be better in next November than it is this November. So is he in a position physically to run for office? And and what would it take for him to not run for office? I mean, I would, it seems like no matter how bad shape he's in, you know, he he wouldn't leave voluntarily. Um, so how bad shape would he have to be in for the Democratic Party to try to replace him? Uh, the next one's Hunter Biden's legal status. I, I don't know if voters really care about this or not, but it just gives people another excuse to sort of justify a vote for Trump, which is like, oh, well, Biden's a crook too. Um, so we'll see where it all goes. And then there are these impeachment proceedings, which I don't think will really go anywhere. Clearly, the Senate's not going to take them up. Um, but do they sort of score any points, you know, land any punches? Is that kind of like a Hillary with the... Um you know, with the with the hard drive kind of stuff, like the yeah, I don't think it's look. It doesn't. It's it's more pronounced in this case because with Hillary, it was an open field on the Republican side. Uh, so whereas here, it's it's not an open field. But um, it, if there are voters who are undecided or you know fully understand what Trump is and yet still think that they would rather have him than Biden. All of these things just give them more rationalization in their mind to, to vote for Trump. Um, Israel, who the fuck knows? Is it a is it a simply a war between Israel and, and Hamas? Is it a regional war? Is it a global war? Um, where is public opinion? You know, half a million people protested in London this weekend against it. Um, I think that you know there were uh, those kind of kidnap signs up on my block uh, over the weekend, and that's why they all got. To, torn down um, yesterday. I mean, there is, if nothing else, I believe, and this may sound like a conspiracy theory, but that China is manipulating the TikTok algorithms to put out a very pro-Hamas, very anti-Israeli Well, I definitely message. talk to my kids about it, and, and it's, it's like the amount that they know about the sort of far-left position on Hamas is, I mean, I, again, I don't know that it's bad because they're talking to us about it and stuff, um, but I don't know how how much that's true with kids across the country, no, <laughs> the right. world. Yeah, your, your kids are in a Jewish atmosphere, an ecosystem. And in fact, a Jewish family. <laughs> right. Um, so, so where does Israel stand? Um, the economy, inflation, jobs, and perception thereof, right? So um, Biden keeps trying to convince everyone that Bidenomics is really great. And look, from a statistical standpoint, he's not wrong in that we've sort of avoided a really bad recession or a depression. We have kind of navigated our way out of COVID. Uh, inflation was high. It's a little lower right now. Interest rates are still pretty high. But job growth, despite last month, overall has been up significantly. But e even if the statistics look pretty good, especially compared to where I think people thought we might have been, people don't feel good. And I think part of it is just inflation is one of those things that once it there are very few things that break through to voters on an emotional and personal level, right? And but but knowing they're paying, you know, fifty percent more for milk or eggs or bacon does gas, and gas, gas, yeah, for sure. And once that happens, it seems extremely hard to get them out of that mindset, even if the reality no longer matches their perception. Well, I thought uh, Krugman had a column about this last week, which I thought was actually really annoying in certain ways. But the but the point was. The problem with inflation, right, is that the prices have gone up and they're not going back down, right? Right. So they, they, the, the rate of increase is slowing, and that's obviously a good thing. But still, if you look back three, four years, prices are a lot higher and they're not going to revert to like 2021 or 2020. Yeah, and, and Krugman keeps, you know, from what I do read him, like, if only people were smart enough to understand yeah, my arguments, then they would, of course, see the light and I know. view the world the way I, I know, do. It's so annoying. <laughs> it's, well, it's not just annoying. It, it turns people off. It, it loses votes. Well, I don't think he has any audience outside people who either agree with him or like to be annoyed because, I mean, it's just not persuasive. It's like, it's it's terrible. No. It's, I mean, a bumper sticker that says Save the Whales has, like, more influence over people's opinions than that. My, my favorite political bumper sticker ever was when I was in law school, and Parker, that was so University of Chicago, and it said... 
subvert the dominant paradigm. So it was like fight the power, but in, in, U, in <laughs> right. UFC speak, I kind of loved Can it. Can I ask you an economic yeah. question though? So one of the one of the things, so so there's a kind of popular sort of concern about the economy that's somewhat rooted in reality, but also like like sort of filled with a lot of fear. But inside the business community, does there seem to be this kind of like the 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 quick rise in rates, the 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 lack of a clear path back to a lower rate environment, does that trouble you and the people yeah, you talk to? Well, I mean, I think the answer is nobody knows anything, and we're in a moment right now where nobody really knows what to think. So, like, just take venture capital as, as an example because it's the one I know better. Um, there's been very, very, very low liquidity events over the last couple of years, um, very little M&A. There were some IPOs in September um, for Instacart and Arm and a few others. Um, and, you know, they didn't really go anywhere. I mean, they kind of all fumbled. So it didn't set off some spree of, of IPOs. Um, there might be some more M&A over the next year or so simply because uh, companies will be going out of business and therefore just get picked up really cheaply by other companies, but mm -hmm. that's not, not really a tech exit. Right. So um, I don't know. I mean, I think that if interest rates were to go down, that would probably change things. But but if Biden believes that inflation is his biggest political threat, um, he's certainly not going to push for interest rates to go down. And Powell, you know, is looking at this from a very macro standpoint. I think he's very good at his job, but, you know, liquidity for venture capitalists is not his concern, right? So he's trying to balance all of the needs of the entire U.S. economy and its impact on the global economy, and he's trying to balance interest rates and inflation to keep us in some level of harmony, um, which is sort of the worst of all worlds from a political standpoint, because like you said, people are convinced that inflation is Biden's fault, and that's really bad. And at the same time, there's nothing really from an economic standpoint to be excited about, so at the moment, it's hard to see why in 12 months, with the caveat that no one knows anything, but it's hard to see why in 12 months the economy will feel meaningfully different than it does today. And if it feels like this, that is devastating for Biden. Right. Um, last two topics yep. here. Uh, one, RFK. You know, look, do I think he's going to, as a third party or even Cornell West, have any real impact in terms of mathematically? Not in terms of... of getting lots of votes. But, you know, Ralph Nader refused to get off the ballot in 2000, and that cost Al Gore the election, which then gave us both the Iraq war and a million unnecessary deaths. And, you know, the one-op time we had to really fight climate change that we didn't do it. So um, the impact of these small things can be tremendous. So if RFK gets 2 3%, I know there are people who say that he's taking it more from Trump than from Biden. Um, but nonetheless, it's just another problem um, that Biden doesn't. You're not mentioning Dean Phillips. Oh, well, because he'll lose in the primary. Oh, I see what you mean. Right, right. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then last one, this is <laughs> this is the good one for Democrats. And this is what Democrats saw and benefit from on Tuesday, which is abortion referendums. Right. So we saw Ohio. Uh, we have seen consistently, even in conservative states like Kansas, uh, Montana, I think, um, people uh, who are coming out to vote in these referendums believe that it's a woman's right to decide what to do with her body and not the government's decision. So there are potential referendums on the ballot in a couple of swing states, Arizona, Nevada, maybe Florida, but getting on the ballot in Florida is very difficult. Um, that could have a very meaningful impact on on turnout, um, and that, that could really change the outcome of those races. So th this is far and away the best thing the Democrats have going for them. But I, I kind of want to just make a macro suggestion to Team Biden which is, I, I think that they're missing the point, right? So you, you have people, voters who love Trump, right? Fine, that's not gonna change. They love him, right? You have people who inherently hate Trump. Fine, that's not gonna change. You have some people who like Biden, great. That's good too. But, but everyone else, especially the voters who are telling pollsters that they'll support Trump over Biden, it, it's that they don't hate Trump enough to outweigh what they see as Biden's negatives, whether it's inflation or his age, or whatever else, and they feel like their lives were better under a Trump presidency um, than under a Biden presidency, right? Now, there's a sort of an anti-recency bias, I think, with this stuff, which is it always seems like it was better before than it is now, and so people might think that their lives were better five, six years ago than they do today. But, you know, the Democrats and, and just have the same strategy kind of over and over and over again, which is like, when the next indictment comes, when the next scandal hits, then everyone will fully see what a terrible person Donald Trump is, and they won't support him anymore because their morality won't let them do so. 
They know. Everybody who's voting for Donald Trump knows exactly who and what he is. Some people actually like it, but a lot of people, and clearly this is the case because he's leading Biden in all these different states, are saying, I get this is what he is, but he was a pretty good president in their view or their recollection, and therefore my life will be better under him than it is under Biden, and I'm voting based on myself, not on the morality of commentators on MSNBC. And so we keep trying, if the definition of sanity is trying the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result, we keep trying the same thing over and over again. He's so terrible. He's evil. He's this. He's that. Yes, he's all of those things. And a lot of people who are still choosing to vote for him say, my life w was better under him than it is under Biden, and I'd like it to be better again, which means Biden's got to change strategy, which is th they've got to impeach Trump, not from a moral and ethical standpoint, but from a substantive standpoint, right? They've got to say, he was a shitty president. You know, the economy was bad under him. Um, we didn't make any progress uh, on infrastructure. We didn't make any progress on kind of making the economy younger so we can pay for all the, the, the boomers. Um, we didn't, you know, we were unprepared for COVID. You know, whatever argument you want to make, they got to find a couple that are that are credible. Even the abortion one might be like, like he's the one that basically allowed abortion to become illegal. Um, but you got to find a way to impeach the guy substantively because this notion of like, if they only hear one more terrible thing about his morality and his ethics, then they'll get it. That doesn't work. They get it. Well, well, I think that's very well said. There, there's two. There's two things that that I would be concerned about um, if I were Biden, but I don't know what to do about it. So maybe maybe you can in, in, weigh in on this. But so one thing that did happen under Trump, and you can argue about how good he was at it or effective at it, or how much he even cared. But the the reorientation of the United States to sort of like onshoring jobs and sort of rebuilding the blue collar economy that is that is actually first of all Biden has picked that up and supported it for the most right. part, and that is happening, and that is something that Trump truly reintroduced into American culture. So, sort of, don't you think? I, no, no. no okay. so, I mean, I think it's interesting because like I would go to Carrier where they were in Indiana, and after all of Trump's boasts that he saved them, they still ended up moving to Mexico. Right. So. I think COVID, and I think the the disruptions to the global supply chain, and I think tax incentives passed on things like uh, the Chips Act and the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. I think actually the Biden is responsible for a lot of this, right? right. Which is, he, he businesses do things offshore if it is cheaper for them to do them onshore. If all of a sudden the transportation costs are a lot higher and a lot more uncertain that your stuff can get from China to the U.S. in a specific amount of time. Right. And the U.S. government saying, hey, we'll throw a lot of incentives at you mm -hmm. to stay here. Then that makes sense for people to choose to do that. But that was pretty much a combination of COVID's disruption of the global disruption of the global supply chain plus a bunch of different things that Biden did specifically. It wasn't Trump, so I would but go there was the other a lot way. Of, there was a lot of hardline talk on there China talk. That, that, in fact, has, yeah. been, has been carried out by, you know, has been picked up by Biden, too. Right, so, but, if, but, if, but I, I don't know that that voters, unless we're at war, voters don't give a shit about foreign policy. So I, I think it's really, you've got to show this guy is a fuck-up, not just in the ways that you think he is, where he is immoral and a general liar and everything else, He's a shitty, he was a shitty president. He'd be a shitty president again. Um, did you see the Time story on uh, the sort of Trump immigration plan for 2025? Yeah. So what was, I, what was amazing about that, so it was kind of an alarming story about, uh, uh, about these creation of these giant deportation camps, really uh, sort of stepped up enforcement throughout the entire country and finding illegal aliens and, or, or undocumented citizens and, or undocumented people and herding them into camps. So I was amazed they, they he actually invokes Eisenhower um, yeah. that, that there was like something called Operation Wetback in the early fifties. Have you ever heard of that? No. Oh my god! The article. They, they barely they said nothing about it. I actually looked it up because I was like, wow, that sounds scary. So um, the but the point was reading that story, I was like, oh wow, they didn't dig around and like like somehow get some secret documents and 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 figure all this out, right? This oh, was handed it's to out them. In the open, but it's not a, but, but it, it's out in the open because look, Team Trump. Are a lot of things, but they're not necessarily politically stupid, right? And they, it's not a winning issue for Democrats. There's actually right. well, that's exactly Times, what I was thinking. I was like, oh wow, they think this is a huge win, right? Yeah, no, it's not. It's it's a either he's immoral, like we get that, 
or no, I mean Trump thinks it's a huge win this in this immigration policy that they're setting up. Like he yeah, thinks he thinks for sure. Is, well, there was an interesting article in the Times today about the demographic shifts of Texas, and what was interesting was it's usually like, well, they're about to be purple because there's a lot of people of color in Texas, and you know everyone who's not white has to be a Democrat. And the rea- what's interesting now is a majority of Latinos in Texas are Texas born, right? They're not immigrants from another country. And their attitudes towards immigration are very different. And I, in many ways, they are not immediately repelled by, you know, a New York Times article about what a piece of shit Stephen Miller is, right? So, like, it, it just, again, the Democrats misreading the field. They live in this little ecosystem and little bubble of Twitter and MSNBC and a, f- a few other things like that. And, and they can't see the forest for the trees. And as a result, they keep getting the wrong issues. So what, is this, what does this mean exactly? So... So Biden should do what? Biden's got to basically stop trying to convince people that Trump's a bad human being. He's got to, not just Biden, but the, the Democratic Party. Stop trying to convince people that Bidenomics is successful because they're not buying it, right? Okay. I actually think it has been reasonably successful from a fiscal standpoint, but they're not buying right. it. And just go after your life will be worse if this guy is president. Not worse because the world is at more existential risk or because he's a terrible human being and phrase at the fabric of democracy you will have less money. Your job is less likely to exist. You will have to pay more for things. You know, y- you have to be able to show. And, and the abortion issue is yeah, part of that too. Yeah, for sure. Okay. But like, and, and if, if you can't impeach him in the sense that people's lives can be worse, if the question is morality versus pocketbook, morality versus sort of just your own benefit, people go for their own pocketbook. They go for so their own it, benefit. It sounds almost like they need a new spokesperson for this, right? Because like the... Well, that might argue a new candidate, right? Well, I know, but they just need somebody, you know, you need like a, like a, uh, what's his name? Well, the, God, I can't believe I'm forgetting his name. What's the famous Clinton advisor? Um, Carville. Carville. Like some guy who just hammers at one thing, right? Like... Yeah, they cut the economy. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it's not Harris because she's so wildly unpopular too that she's not an effective messenger. But then you still see Biden. You know, the left isn't doing them any favors because, like, that's what Beto the other day attacked Biden for not being liberal enough on certain things. And sure, that probably got him a lot of retweets and attention, so it made him personally. What is Beto doing? Yeah, nothing's a fucking gadfly. Um, but like, it, it probably got him some attention, and so the dopamine hits that he needs came through for right. him. Great, good for you, Beto. But it further weakened Biden's chance of winning the uh, the election next year. All right, We're Coll- talking- collectively, not Beto's. You're making thing. me depressed, Bradley. It sounds like Biden's a, a shit screen. But um, I I still don't know that he won't win. Um, but it is. I think that their strategy so far has been off. Right. Well, they have a well. They don't have that long. Um, so Dean Phillips in the primary is just like I, I, you know, there was the news about Sam Altman meeting with him and and uh, getting behind his yeah, just like the Chamath and all those guys did join DeSantis for his Twitter launch of his campaign. You know, like whatever, it's no different than the hedge funders jumping on Tim Scott. It is people looking for alternatives, looking for attention, and oftentimes people in the tech and business world not knowing what they don't know, and because they are so wealthy and they're so smart in some ways. They don't realize sort of how little they know in others. Okay. Um, did you want to talk about the World Series? Yeah, briefly. Okay. I mean, I, maybe I'm the only person that cares about this, but um, the the rating for the World Series was very low, and among sort of the core group of baseball fans that I have in my friend group, everyone was a little uh, anxious about it because, oh, no, you know, the sport just keeps getting less and less popular. Um, and look, it's true. In part, it was Phoenix versus Dallas, right? So that is just not basically most of the U.S. But But here's the macro point. Let's assume that the ratings go down another 40%, 50%, whatever it is. Nothing's really going to change, right? All that happens is the economics of baseball correspond to the size of the market. So when the market is currently a $10 billion a year revenue business, teams are worth so much, players make so much. But if it's less, they will just adjust on the downside, right? So most players, it's not like they have great other alternatives if they weren't baseball players. So until the average salary got down to under $100,000, they're always going to pick playing baseball ahead of uh, doing, you know, some other job. And the average salary right now is something like $8 million. So, you know... Um, well, I think the thing is not if, it's not that the, it's going to go extinct or something. It's just that the messy process by which, like, the game shrinks is, like, so, like... But I, mean, I don't think it matters. No, I, it might not matter, but think about the way the media covers things, Right. 
I mean, there'll be teams possibly going out of business. There'll be like owners just complaining. That, there'll be bailouts. There'll be like be, more well, deals for, for ballparks. It'll just be a just well, a you know, mess. But but before things start going out of business, just the so instead of teams being worth two, three, four billion, they'll be worth. Four hundred million, eight hundred million, whatever it is. Instead of players making ten million a year, they'll make a million a year. Right, but the you know, but the teams, as you can see from like San Diego, they're clearly gigantically leveraged well, operations. That, that, you know? that one team, although they've MLB has sort of a specific debt to equity type ratio. Yeah, you believe and, all that? I mean, I, I think <laughs> they'd be smart to enforce it. Sounds like San Diego certainly violated. I it. mean, I'm sure they have all these standards, and I'm sure most of the teams abide by it. But like. Look at these guys. I they're just think, but to, ultimately, where the fuck are they going to go? The owners, oh no, they're still the gonna players. Be, they're still going to be baseball. It's, it's I not going to be any different. And the fact, the reality is, if we had contraction instead of expansion, the level of play would go up. It would yeah. be better baseball. It's just the vibe would be very bad. I don't know. You I don't think I, so? I, I kinda, everybody would be like, oh my God, everybody hates baseball. It's, it's falling apart. That, but that, that's the vibe among sort of like the cognoscenti in the media. Who gives a shit what they think? Like, as a fan, it seems to me that the only two negative outcomes of let's say the game contracting economically in a meaningful way would be one stadiums wouldn't be as nice right, right. so right now um stadiums are really nice and you wouldn't have quite as much luxury there two arguably the best athletes in the u.s would choose to play football and basketball ahead of baseball but you know what they've already picked that. soccer yeah. soccer but that's already happening so like I don't really think there's that big a risk. It probably means the game gets even more international. Fine, great, who cares? But but I just, like, this notion that it is somehow, like, like people celebrate how much these teams are worth. You don't benefit from that. I don't benefit from that. Who cares? Like, like the, the well, economic... I like I like your I like your 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 underlying theory here, which is just that like you like baseball, and and therefore the baseball games are going to continue to be played. It's not going anywhere, right? So I think I look. I think that's a very look. I think it's a very beautiful notion. I just think that the way the media environment works, it'll just be such a clusterfuck. If teams, I mean, look at look what's happening with like the Oakland A's and what a nightmare that is. Uh, by the way, baseball might be better off. First of all, Vegas clearly is a better market than, yeah. than than Oakland. But you know what? If there was one fewer team, then we wouldn't have as much shitty middle relief pitching, right? Because there'd be eight fewer middle relievers in the, in the game. I guess, but there's always going to be a balance between guys doing well and guys not doing well. I mean, that's not going to change. There'll always be shitty <laughs> no, players. No, but the more you expand. <laughs> The more you weaken the overall standard. Yeah. So the p middle relievers are better and guys are striking out more and late in the game. That won't well, be. Whatever. Point, yeah. or, or, or you get better hitters, whatever it is. But the, the point is, I, I, I just don't really see any negative externality for fans, kind of regardless of what ratings or revenue is for MLB or any sport. Okay. Um, so one of our hard pivots here. Yeah. We're going from baseball to the UK AI Summit in Bletchley right. Park. Um, so they settled it. They got this figured out. The world Hold on. Is <laughs> we are safe from AI. Thank you. Kamala uh, Harris was there and she yeah. figured it out. <laughs> yeah. Thank, thank so you. So what happened there? Why does it Nothing matter? Nothing happened. I mean, okay. this, this is what's frustrating is, and Harris's remarks I thought were especially frustrating, which is you had world leaders, and it was a big deal because China was there too, um, talking about their fears of AI and how to regulate AI. Fine. Great. They should be having those conversations. But, but there seemed to me to be like a few massive misconceptions, and this again gets to the frustration of people in the business world and people in the tech world just truly not understanding politics, right? One is this notion that, oh, China, you know, clearly it's an olive branch and they want to work with us now. Like, no, AI is a threat to a totalitarian state. Just like they ban cryptocurrency, they don't want anything that could potentially take away the power uh, of, of the rulers there. And so AI is terrifying to them. And while they can control things within their own borders, to the extent that they could help sort of just deter the growth of AI overall internationally, that further reduces the risk to them. They're only there because they're an authoritarian state, and this is a threat to their authoritarianism. There's no good intentions by them at all, number one. Number two, Kamala Harris talking about how, like, oh, the U.S. is, you know, we're the, we're the home of AI, and we're going to figure out how to regulate this thing and do it appropriately— you haven't figured out how to regulate Internet 2.0 yet. We still have Section 230. We still don't have any sort of data privacy framework nationally. We still don't have a strong antitrust system. So, like, the basic things, like social media in many ways and all of its evils, I mean, it's literally like the fucking unhappiness machine. I was reading a book by a guy named Morgan Housel over the weekend that was touching on this, and I thought it was interesting. Um, and, and, like, it, it is the notion that here we are ready to figure out how to regulate AI, which we don't even know what it is yet, right? 
when we haven't even figured out how to regulate fucking Facebook or Snapchat or whatever it is, is so asinine. And what's terrifying is, you know, they're jumping to the next shiny thing because AI is, you know, gets attention and they just, politicians exist. Does it get, get attention? attention? Does anyone really like this? Do media gets attention. Yeah, but it's weird because to real I'm like, people? No, no, there was the fact there was a poll that showed that like, by Axios or someone, it was like number 11 out of the top 15 issues to voters because it doesn't affect their lives at I'm all. I'm surprised it's even that high, other. just repetition. Yeah, but but the media, you know, it's the shiny thing and the media runs towards the shiny thing and the politicians run towards the media. Right. But like the notion that they should even be talking about regulating AI when they haven't even figured out how, how to do the existing job yet, to me, like I, I'm not offended because I fully understand how and why politicians are the way they are, but it's just pathetic. Right. Um, all right. Well, next time they should bring you to the summit. And, and so I could tell them all how pathetic they are. Lecture them yeah, I'm sure that. that's what they want to hear. <laughs> um, let's turn to like this exciting, um, you know, it's really good times here in New York City. The mayor is um, surrendering his his, uh, his iPhones to the FBI. Um, or I don't know if he has iPhones. I'm sure he does. But um, I'm sure he does. Uh, so. So what's going on here? How worrisome is this? Yeah. Is it, is it, it, I guess the other question I just want to get to is it's bad for New York City. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I'm talking about. So let's first, I'll lay out what it seems like we know so far. Great. And then I'll analyze it. So we know that the FBI uh, approached Mayor Adams on the street the other day and physically intercepted his phones and electronic devices. That's a pretty dramatic step. Really crazy. There are other ways to obviously get his electronic devices. Um, We know that they, uh, raided the home of Brianna Suggs, his chief fundraiser, two weeks ago, uh, kind of early morning. Again, highly dramatic raid. So usually when the FBI and the U.S. Attorney are behaving this publicly and this aggressively, it signals like there's real fire where there's smoke, right? Right. So, but then the facts that have at least come out so far don't necessarily indicate that. So the 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 quid is a straw donor scheme with Turkish companies, maybe the Turkish government, to evade uh, donation limits by by having multiple people give money, um, you know, so that therefore they could exceed the amount rather than one person being capped at a certain amount that they could give. Um, that's illegal. It's a straw donor scheme, but you know, usually not something that leads to the indictment of the city mayor. In fact, John Liu, who was the city controller um, and ran for mayor in 2013, his campaign was sort of undone by the fact that he had a straw donor scheme scandal. His campaign treasurer was indicted, but but Lou was not indicted, right? Um, so that's one. Um, two is Adams is believed to have called uh, the, the then fire commissioner, this one Adams was borough president, but had already won the mayoral primary, to push for the certificate of occupancy to open the Turkish consulate. So Turkey built a new consulate. Erdogan, I guess, was coming here to celebrate it. They Did you were, even know about this building? Not until I read the article. Right. No. Um, and... Apparently, there were various safety violations and concerns. Did you hear a huge piece of glass fell 18 stories? Yep. Oh, my and, God. And I read the same stories you did. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, um, and Adams pushed for them to get a temporary CO anyway, right? So that's what we know so far. And then here's what I want to say. So the disruption to the city of New York, if the sitting mayor is either indicted and resigns or is indicted and then governs while under indictment, is extremely high. That doesn't mean that you don't indict the mayor for criminal behavior. What I'd like to do is go through what merits it and what doesn't merit it, because the problem here is the facts, what we know so far, maybe the problem is there are lots of key facts we just don't know yet, but of what we know so far, um, it's hard to see how this would merit the cost uh, of indicting the mayor. So, So first category would be personal enrichment. Generally speaking, Voters don't give a shit about campaign finance violations, but they do care about personal enrichment. So if a politician is putting money in his pocket, that is a huge no-no. If money's getting funneled to a campaign, it's so complicated, people don't really care. So far, there have not been any real claims of personal enrichment for Adams. The only thing that comes close to it that I can see is they mentioned a 2015 trip he took to Turkey that was paid for in part by the Turkish government. That's not necessarily illegal or even uncommon. There are you know U.S. politicians all the time basically take these junkets to other countries that are paid for by political action committees or chambers of commerce or foreign governments. Um, And so just doing that, if you're there and you're technically official capacity, isn't really enough. Now, vacations can constitute personal enrichment. So George Ryan, who was the governor of Illinois, went to jail 
for a couple of different luxury free vacations that he got uh, from donors. Um, but there was no, he wasn't there in any sort of official capacity. He was effectively just taking bribes, right? If they can show that Adams, that these trips to Turkey and he went there six or seven times or there's three weeks he spent in Kazakhstan, that if any of those amount to bribes and he wasn't there in official capacity, he was just being personally enriched in some way, that's one thing. But if they can't show that and they don't have any other examples of it, you don't have personal enrichment. So that that that's category one. Category two would be the quo and the quid quo quo. Um, I, to me, at least, a borough president calling the fire commissioner and saying, hey, my constituents have this issue and pushing them to grant a certificate of occupancy is just the normal course of business, right? And, you know, is it perhaps a little sleazy? Yeah, Eric Adams is sleazy, right? <laughs> I mean, we know this. It would be in the end campaign. We couldn't have said it more fucking times. I mean, he's almost been indicted twice already. But is it, it's pretty routine, right, uh, to try to help someone get a fire permit. So, you know, now look, perhaps if Adams knew that glass was falling and the building was wildly unsafe and he was pushing hard for it anyway, Maybe that starts to cross the line, but I don't really think so. Look, if there's a quo in terms of these Turks or other people in return for campaign contributions got city contracts, city grants, permits, things like that, by all means, right? But if the quo is making the borough president calling a fire commissioner and pushing for a certificate of occupancy or a temporary CO even, that doesn't do it. So the third would be straw donor scheme. So in and of itself, John Liu did not get indicted for a straw donor scheme where it starts to get dicey is two areas. One is, the challenge for New York City is, not only is it that you have campaign limits, and so there's somebody wanted a right to say $100,000 worth of checks to Eric Adams, and the limit was you know, three grand or whatever it is, they'd have to find 33 other people to do it with them. That's illegal. But then we have matching funds, so that every time, for every you know certain dollar you basically raise, you get $4 back from the taxpayers. So if you are deliberately subverting the campaign finance laws, to then generate more matching funds, that could amount to theft of taxpayer money and defrauding the campaign finance board. And I could see how that could rise to the level uh, of mayoral indictment. And then the final thing would be conspiring with the foreign government. We just haven't seen that before yet, right? So I, I don't know. Turkey is an authoritarian country. Um, the, the challenge is, other than maybe this one certificate of occupancy, it's hard to see what Turkey gets out of electing someone mayor in New York City. Yeah, they're City. just like a, they're almost just like a landlord or something. Yeah, or I just, something. what else do they need? I mean, yeah. it just doesn't, Mayor of New York City doesn't have any power when it comes to this stuff. So maybe a little bit of a, a bully pulpit, but I don't think you have to sort of go to these great lanes for that. So um, maybe that's it. But if you can't show that they deliberately defrauded the taxpayers and you can't show that Adams was personally enriched, and you can't show a quo beyond a call from the borough president to the fire commissioner, like, I just don't think you have it. Okay, let me ask my question. So um, this is this kind of investigation, right? It's not like a January 6th thing where like this big thing happened, everybody saw it, and you know the prosecutors or the investigators have to move in and try yeah. to figure out what's going on. This is like something we had no idea about. This is something that someone had to dig for and basically pass off to the FBI, right? Someone had to call and be like, hey, you should take a look at this. They right? found this somehow, yeah. So it's not just they found it somehow. Someone gave it to them. Which means that like like somebody is definitely trying to like you know get Adams out of power. Is that? I don't. But here's the thing: you have an entire division, as you should, at the U.S. Attorney's Office, devoted to public corruption, right? And a mayor who has had a litany of scandals and skirted indictments several times already comes into office. There's, as he has said. It's going to be a target on his back. He has acted like that's unfair. So they're calling the fire department being like, hey, is the mayor murdered. called about it? Or no, he wasn't the mayor no, when he called but, the fire you know, department. You, you hear about something somehow. You got 20 super sharp assistant U.S. attorneys who are all chasing stuff down. They're all looking to get the biggest scalp on the wall they can for their own So you think it's just that? No, it's not It's not like somebody's... Maybe maybe, maybe there is, the but, if, but you know what? That's fucking politics, right. man. People drop guess that's all day, every right, day. Right. That's, that's the business, I and mean, you have to be ready for that. Um, and the only way to avoid that is to keep your nose clean. And, you know, Adams, at the very best, is sort of okay at that, if, if not substandard. But with all that said, by the way, I didn't vote for Adams. I voted for the general election, but I didn't vote for him. Well, I can't vote for him. I supported Andrew Yang. Everyone knows that. That's pretty public. Um, I, I really thought that Adams, in many ways, would be problematic for, for a bunch of reasons. Um, and we're seeing all the ways I thought he'd be problematic now display themselves in office from a lack of ability to hire good people. Um, to a lack of sort of really getting a handle on problems like the illegal weed shops to, to corruption scandals. With all of that said, um, 
he's still the mayor of New York City. And if he were to be indicted for something that's kind of bullshit, this is what happens. One of two things. Either he steps down, then Jamani Williams, who's the public advocate, then becomes the um, mayor for 90 days. Then we have a special election. And then roughly 18 months later, we have the Democratic primary or even less. It is possible under this scenario that we could have four different mayors in two years. As highly disruptive to the city. We were facing an unprecedented migrant crisis, an 11-figure budget deficit, so over $10 billion, massive quality of life epidemic. And I don't know that Eric Adams is doing a great job with any of it, but to turn that over one, two, three, four times in 24 months um, is pretty insane. You better have a good reason for it. Or more likely, if Adams, if they don't catch him on something really bad and it's just this phone call and they indict him for that, He's going to say, I'm not going anywhere because I'm innocent. Just like Bob Menendez got fucking gold bars. He hasn't resigned yet. Donald Trump is under criminal indictment and is the leading candidate for the presidency. So now you're going to have a mayor governing while under indictment, which is a massive distraction. It completely undermines whatever credibility he has. And so either way, the outcome for the city is really bad. Now, if they have the mayor doing something truly corrupt, by all means, indict him. But it's got to be better than this. Should we uh, check in with Bob? Yeah, you want to you want to tee this up? While yeah. I, uh... So, um, reason Bob is kind of our our in house Bob Greenley, um, climate and energy expert. He he really knows energy and climate policy backwards and forwards. And last week, the first plant came online in the U.S. for carbon capture. It's very small, very modest. But the exciting thing about carbon capture is it's the only technology that I have seen that rather than just limiting future harm by making you know future emissions less bad. Uh, or lower, it actually sucks carbon out of the atmosphere. Ultimately, if we could, if we could suck billions of, of uh, tons of carbon out of the atmosphere, that significantly reduces the temperature, um, which then significantly addresses the problem. So it's, it's the only sort of proactive solution I've seen to it. So I've been kind of captivated by it, um, no pun intended, for a long time. And then now finally, a, a plant in Central California went online last week. So I thought Bob would just come on, come on and just talk about it for a few minutes. Okay, uh, Bob Greenlee, who is a bunch of things, Chief Operating Officer of South Holdings among them. Um, but for purposes of this conversation, Bob is also our climate and energy policy expert uh, here in the Tusk Holdings. And Bob, there was a story came out that the first carbon capture plant came online in the U.S. last week. It's very small, but I kind of wanted to just talk it through anyway. So I think the first question is, what's your underlying view of carbon capture? I'm a carbon capture optimist. I think it's something that we need to do if we're going to hit all of our carbon capture goals. I think that it's something that, it, that should be doable. I think that like a lot of things in the climate tech world, it's a, there are a lot of hard technical problems. And we have to make sure we're doing it right and not being counterproductive. But in the long run, I'm optimistic. So right now, the, the plan, Heirloom Carbon Technologies in Central California, according to this article, can absorb 1,000 tons of carbon dioxide per year, which is about to equal the emissions of, of 200 cars, which is nothing, right? Now, that's not necessarily right. a problem because all technology starts off that way. Um, and it is wildly expensive, right? Six to $800 per removal uh as opposed to like you know 200 and other 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 mitigation strategies but this is the only one that actually as i understand it can arguably reduce the problem itself as opposed to just reducing the rate of increasing the problem is that right that that is right carbon capture generally speaking is one of the few strategies that actually takes carbon out of the atmosphere so it makes a difference that said it's a really hard technical thing to do effectively what you're doing is you're drawing you're drawing air through kind of a chemical substrate a chemical filter and you're filtering out the carbon dioxide which even in the air is extremely diffuse so it means in order to do it right and in the places where this is going to work are going to be places that have a lot of carbon dioxide much more much higher than normal concentrations which is to say like factories Right. If you have some place that's producing a disproportionate amount of carbon dioxide, that's the place where something like this could work. But then that, again, just gets to like to me, that feels like just another version of technology to reduce emissions. I mean, it seems to me that we have already emitted so much carbon into the atmosphere that whether or not we can get the rate, the increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius, 
there's already massive damage being done and that will be done. And it, the only solution to that is to reduce the overall amount of carbon in the atmosphere, um, which I think means you have to be able to remove billions of tons of carbon. You know, are we on track, even if we're just like in the bottom of the, the first batter in the first inning, but like, is that where we're heading or is it at best just another mitigant? I think it's slightly better than another mitigant, but right now we're still at another mitigant, right? Because the challenge you have to face is if we're going to do this, this is going to take energy to reduce carbon dioxide, right? To run the machines that move it. So you have to figure out a perfect solution of clean energy that fuels it, carbon enough carbon for it to be meaningful, and then uh, this, you know, something to do with the carbon afterwards. And this is another one of the things that's slowing down many of these projects is it's very hard to get political commitment on what to do with the carbon after you've captured it. Um, people are not super excited about sending it back into the ground, which is called sequestration. People would love to use it for things like making uh, clean cement, which uses carbon dioxide right now. But then you have to have a facility located right where you're mitigating or taking out the carbon. So it's it is there's just a lot of technical challenges. And, you know, it's we are probably the first batter of the first inning right now. And, and so is this an example of Moore's Law where it, it feels like an incredibly complex, daunting problem, but because the, the pace of technology, according to Moore's Law, the pace of technology effectively doubles over two years, you solve really long intractable problems a lot faster than you think, or is this like a a hundred year thing? I I think it's in between that. I think there will be an acceleration, but unlike Moore's law, which works with, you know, um, chips, which are relatively cheap to produce all the equipment here you're talking about is relatively large and significant infrastructure, which means you're subject to things like interest rate fluctuations. And if you see over the last week, in addition to the heirloom project, you've seen a major nuclear project kind of crater. You've seen a major offshore wind project crater. And those aren't cratering because the technology is somehow non-feasible. They're cratering because of the economics, which are a very different set of economics than we saw in a zero interest rate universe. So, but like ultimately, and I know there are some VCs that invest in things like carbon capture, but to your point, because the capex is so large, it's not something that venture capital can do. I'm not even really sure it's something that the private markets can do. Um, it, it does come down to massive government subsidies, but isn't that what we were supposedly achieved in the Inflation Reduction Act and, and, the, and the Infrastructure Act? It wasn't at the point that the money is now there for stuff that we need? That was the point, and the money will be there for stuff that we need. But for example, in the carbon capture portion of the infrastructure bill, of which there was a decent amount in the form of a enhanced 45Q tax credit, um, what you're seeing is that that money comes in over the course of time. It comes in over 10 years. Um, The subsidies we see for nuclear facilities come in in the form of like loan guarantees that come in over time. So it's um, like everything else, the amount of subsidies that you see versus the scale of the project are not huge. I agree with you. It is tough to find for these kind of large-scale climate mitigants. It's tough to find venture money that will do it. I think over the course of time and with the return profile, there are infrastructure funds who will find ways to make this work. And that's probably the most likely scenario for a lot of these projects is finding infrastructure funds that have the return profile that's appropriate to these types of investments. I mean, it seems like collectively, in order for carbon capture to remove enough carbon from the atmosphere to make a material difference, we're going to need not just much, much more powerful plants than we have today, but a lot of them, right? Thousands and thousands and thousands, if not more. So we're talking trillions of dollars. And that sounds like just an insurmountable amount of money. However, globally, if you said to all the governments of the world, all the real estate owners of the world, all the insurance companies of the world, everyone who loses from bad actions right now coming out of of climate change, um, this is the solution to the problem. I would imagine that we could actually raise the money for that fairly quickly. I mean, we would put four or five trillion went out to try to save the U.S. economy during COVID. And I think despite the impact on inflation, it was a very good thing to have done. Um, this is sort of existential to the the, the planet and, and our own survival. So shouldn't this be a problem that collective action could solve? It should. I mean, the challenge with this, and I, I think we see this in another context, which is democracy is very good and collective action is very good at solving 
big problems with one clear solution, right? If everyone says we have a single problem or a single energy, we need to band together to do it. Collective action is incredibly successful, that far more successful than some type of top-down kind of um, centralized approach. The challenge is collective action works really poorly when there are a bunch of potential solutions and collectively people can't agree on which one. So in this case, yes, you could pursue, if collective action decided to strictly pursue carbon sequestration, they could you could see, I think, significant changes. But if some portion of the universe said, well, we're, what we really want to do is focus on fully eliminating coal, or what we really want to do is promoting more nuclear, then suddenly you're, you're, spl you're splitting your collective action into five or 10 different streams. And the question is, which, if any, are going to be ultimately successful if they're not really at the scale they need to be? And I, it kind of feels like that's more the problem than and, and a lack of will. A-B testing where it's like, okay, here's a carbon capture possibility. Here's a nuclear possibility. Here's a renewable energy possibility. And then you just sort of see which ones advance the fastest, and that's where the money goes. Or um, is it that in any order for any of these to really advance, especially the really complicated stuff like carbon capture, the focus and the commitment has to be there on the front end? I think the world we're living in right now is the former world where we're AB, effectively A-B testing a lot of these. And we are, you do have to be at some degree of scale. I mean, the, the problem with nuclear, for example, is that the infrastructure costs and the permitting costs are so high up front that it makes the, you know, the power itself that's generated is relatively cheap. The, infra, the, the cost recovery is incredibly expensive. So it is a question, it is something where that will become a bit of a hurdle, the latter point that you made. But it's not to say that people aren't trying all of these things at once right now. We are definitely in the A-B testing, test all the approach, and see where the see where the breakthroughs come. Because it may be that a breakthrough comes more quickly in one area than another. I personally am of the all of the above school saying we'll probably need to use every tool in our toolkit if we're going to make a real difference. So ultimately, uh, if in 100 years humans exist in the same capacity we do right now, do we look back on last week and say that was a seminal turning point in the whole thing? Um, or am I making too much of this? You're making too much of it. It's it's definitely not a seminal turning point in the whole thing. Um, I think the question, let's give it a couple of years and see what kind of results they get and what types of improvements we start to see. If they are able to you know, increase the scale from 200 cars to 2,000 cars in a year and we're seeing a real hockey stick, then we can say, okay, this is... This is the point where it happened. But my suspicion is from a purely engineering standpoint, the getting online in the first place is not the, the achievement. The achievement is going to come from the refining and the scaling. Got it. All right, Bob, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. Talk soon. Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PNT Netware, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.